We continue our trip through the Bible this evening. In our last uh, period together, you remember we completed the book of Genesis and the life of Joseph. Technically, the next book in our Bibles chronologically would be the book of Job. We don't know exactly when Job lived, but undoubtedly he was pre-Mosaic. Not anything mentioned in the book of Job about the temple, the law of Moses, the Sabbath, any of the things that are associated with Jewish religion. Uh, he may have even predated Abraham. But there is, I think, an allusion in the book to the flood, so no doubt post-flood, but pre-Moses. Scholars also do not really know where the land of Uz is located, perhaps in northern Arabia. But it's not necessary, in my opinion, for us to know those things about each book of the Bible, because the message is intact. And it's important for us to grasp the message that God, the Holy Spirit, intended to convey to us through his word. So what is the point of the book of Job. May I suggest to you that it's designed to answer the question, why do bad things happen to good people? And the answer to the question is, you do not need to know the answer to the question. That's the answer. You're treated to two chapters at the beginning that assure us that Job was a righteous, faithful man, obedient to God, and then we are treated to a most unusual um, piece of information that Satan has the ability to come into the presence of God, to interact with him, and on this occasion he did so and challenged the righteousness of Job by arguing that Job was only righteous because of the many blessings that God had given him. And so in, in those two chapters we're treated to calamity after calamity that is brought upon Job. It would be uh, horrible to uh, lose all of your economic capability, would it not? Uh, his uh, economic holdings were devastated. Uh, but no doubt in his mind, even worse than that, was for him to lose all ten of his kids on the same day. Uh, that kind of suffering, it seems to me, is uh, of such a magnitude that probably none of us will experience that. And you and I have either known people or ourselves have experienced various forms of suffering that have caused us a great deal of grief and pain in our lives. But I've never known anyone who uh, <clears throat> conducted a funeral at a church building with 10 caskets lined up across the front of the auditorium. Have you? All 10 of his kids in one day. And if that was not enough, he then lost his own health and the suffering that he endured there, <clears throat> again, medical authorities that examine the text, there's several uh, verses to look at, uh, and you put all of that together and they concluded that perhaps he uh, had con contracted elephantiasis, which is a, a type of leprosy, but it's uh, excruciating, extremely painful, it's a slow death, and uh, the description of it in the book itself includes things like uh, running sores on his body where he would take broken pieces of pottery and scrape it. Uh, he couldn't sleep at night. Uh, his whole body became emaciated. Uh, he was just in constant misery and torment. 
And in chapter 3 then, after his three friends, uh, seven friend, three friends show up after uh, hearing of this news, they uh, situate themselves and say nothing until uh, Job speaks up in chapter 3 and basically wishes the day of his birth on the calendar had been extinguished. And, and then the three friends begin to speak. And so from chapter 4 forward, we have these interactions back and forth between these three individuals, um, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And you remember how Job responds after each one speaks and tries to give a, a comeback. And of course, their main point is, uh, you know, there's no question that you've sinned. That's why you're suffering all this. God's punishing you. And Job's contention is, I don't, I don't think so, unless he's punishing me for the sins of my youth. But I'm not conscious that I've done anything against God's will. I've, I've striven to live faithfully to him. And he also argues that uh, there are moments where instead of responding to his friends, he's talking to God and basically expects God to kind of give account of himself, explain why this is happening to me. This doesn't seem fair. He doesn't come right out and accuse God of injustice, but that's the suggestion, because if he's innocent and he's suffering and the friend says it's due to sin and he, don't think, he doesn't think that's the case, then there needs to be some sort of explanation given. And he concludes in chapter 31 with a tremendous speech in which he details uh, proper behavior of a righteous person. Uh, it's a good, good chapter for Christians to study because uh, they are things that God expects of faithful people today. And then you remember in chapter 32, that shadowy figure, Elihu, or Elihu, speaks all the way to chapter 37. And he has many good points uh, that defend God, that um, even condemn the friends. But he does have some words of uh, uh, rebuke for Job. And then you remember um, in chapter 38, God breaks the silence silence and speaks. And the gist of those four chapters are clearly designed to say to Job, I don't have to give account of myself to you. I don't have to explain why things happen in your life or in the world or in the universe. So that's really the answer to facing suffering. To realize who God is, to focus upon God, to recognize his greatness, his splendor, his majesty. You know, he pummels Job with, uh, what, about 20 different facets of the natural order, the inanimate realm. And then he moves to uh, some of the creatures that he's created and hits him with about nine of those. And ask him very detailed questions. You know, do you understand how this works? Do you understand the calving uh, of the deer? And uh, when, that, when that's to occur and how, how it's to be orchestrated? And so, and most of those things that he mentions, uh, we still lack a tremendous amount of knowledge about. But some of them uh, we have been able to examine in, in research and in our advanced capabilities. You know, like going to the bottom of the ocean and seeing the springs of the sea. But much of that is still a, somewhat of a mystery to humanity. And you remember he brings his uh, argumentation. God, 
he layers his argumentation and builds to that climax where he calls Job's attention to two, the two, I suppose, uh, greatest creatures of all of the, the animal realm that God created. First, the first one known for its basically size and power, behemoth, which God said, I made along with you. So that's not a mythological creature, uh, but an actual creature that it seems to me only can, when you look at the description, it fits only the dinosaur uh, dinosaurs with which we are familiar, the Apatosaurus uh, family or uh, family of dinosaurs that uh, exhibit all of those uh, characteristics. And then in chapter 41, he brings it to the ultimate climax. Basically calls this the king of the creatures that looks down upon all others. It's an aquatic animal that uh, probably is extinct now, although you realize that <clears throat> 85 to 90 percent of the ocean has been completely unexplored by human beings. Did you know that? NASA has, done, has uh, scanned the entire globe, the surface of the ocean, but they can't, they can't see to the bottom. And so uh, massive amounts of the ocean uh, have not been explored, examined, or viewed by human beings. There's no telling what's there. Uh, they're still finding new species uh, of such creatures. And this creature is clearly fire-breathing. I don't see how that could be metaphorical because everything about the creature, is, as he has described to us, uh, shows literal characteristics. Well, in chapter 42, that's when Job says, basically, you know, I, he previously said, I should have put my hand over my mouth and stayed quiet. But he acknowledges that he uh, had no right to expect God to give account of himself, to explain the intricacies of the world as they related to Job's own life. Um, you and I do not need to understand uh, what all's in the background that brings circumstances into our life that calls, causes us grief and pain. Well, what is it that is, is going to be able then to sustain you and to make you able to bear up under that? And of course, it's our relationship with God. And God depicted himself there as the great governor of the universe. Uh, he is so far above us and so majestic and so powerful. You know, the omnipotence of God is seen in all those factors that he detailed to Job. We are powerless in the face of such majesty. And the more we become acquainted with him, the more we realize we don't really need anyone or anything except him. So if we lose everybody in our lives, we lose our health, we lose all of our possessions, lose everything, sit on some ash heap out here, uh, stripped and no food or nothing. Now this book says you still ought to worship God. You still ought to be faithful to God and obey him because he's God. He's God. And he is the only one worthy of worship and it is expected of all humanity and to fail to do so uh, is to do so without any justification whatsoever. So Christians of all people, when they, like Peter said, when you get knocked upside the head with some horrible suffering in your life, he says, don't be bewildered. Don't, don't think it's strange that this has happened to you. Christians are informed people who understand that this is the way the universe is set up 
for the ultimate purpose that God had in mind for us to prepare our spirits for eternity. And so there are so many things about this life that we do not know and do not have to know in order to find the proper contentment and satisfaction and to function effectively for God. What a powerful book. And I think the climax of the book is stated there in chapter 42 when, when Job said, I'd, I'd heard about you, but now I've seen you. Well, he had not seen God visibly, physically. God appeared in a, a tornadic type you know, storm, a whirlwind or something, but I think he's saying I've moved more from awareness of God, hearing and knowing what I should do, and I've tried to live that way, but now my nearness to him has shifted. It's like going from hearing to seeing. And he's contented. He doesn't need to have uh, answers to the questions that he kept raising. And I know that God was pleased with him, not only because the Holy Spirit in James tells us uh, to zero in on the patience of Job. Be, be conscious of the perseverance that Job manifests. So that tells me that all through that ordeal and those trials, he maintained a persevering attitude. He was going to stay faithful to God even if he wanted some explanations given, which is stepping across or getting pretty close to that line of challenging God. But I think it's also evident in the chapter, chapter 42, when God turns to the three friends and says, you need to have him pray for you because you haven't represented me correctly like he has. And then you know how God blessed him with uh, additional children, in fact, 10. You say, wow, his 10 kids were replaced. Well, no doubt those 10 brought him uh, pleasure and encouragement. But notice that God does not take away from us the scars, the emotional, psychological, and even physical scars that come to us from the hard knocks of life. God did not eliminate from Job's mind and from his wife's mind the uh, memories of those 10 kids and raising those children to adulthood and so forth. We have to live with heartache for the rest of our life. But for Christians, that, that doesn't set the tone of our lives. That doesn't uh, represent who we are, or, nor does that inform our behavior uh, when it's sinful and we justify it by saying, well, look what I've had to go through. Look what happened to me. Woe is me. No, if Job could uh, see the necessity of staying faithful to God through it all, then we can too. There's no book like that on the planet that addresses that subject. The justice of God, suffering in the world, and the necessity of acknowledging him as who he is and being faithful to him. Well, that brings us then to the book of uh, Exodus. Uh, between the close of Genesis and the opening of Exodus, a period of time has gone by. Again, we're not certain how long. It could have been a, a while. Uh, we're informed that... Um, a pharaoh came to power who knew not Joseph. Now that either means that he was unacquainted with Egyptian history or he didn't care about Egyptian history. You know, that's the case, I think, with a lot of our politicians. They're aware of past president stuff, but they didn't like him, they don't agree with him, and they're going to do different things. So he knew not Joseph. But what he did see under his uh, oversight as the pharaoh of the entire Egyptian empire was an entire ethnic group of people that had grown up 
numerous, right there uh, in the heart of the empire. Uh, I suppose he considered them perhaps a security threat uh, to the nation. I don't know. Uh, but he made a decision to subjugate them, to bring them under bondage and slavery. And he did so, and there they remained for many, many years. You remember uh, one pharaoh decided to try to thin out the Hebrew population. Again, no doubt, because he saw them as a threat. And so issued a decree calling for the killing of firstborn sons, or boy, baby boys that were born from that point forward, firstborn in that sense. And uh, it's during this period of time that we're introduced to a man and woman, husband and wife, from the tribe of Levi. They had already had a son and a daughter. Uh, they gave birth to their third child, a little baby boy, and uh, tried to hide him in defiance of governmental decree for about three months. And I suppose it became too dangerous at that point uh, because of the size of the child, the capability for noise or whatever. So they decided to uh, fashion a little bassinet and waterproof it and place the child inside, cover it over, place him afloat on the Nile River in the vicinity of where Pharaoh's daughter was in the habit of coming down by the riverside with her uh, attendants to bathe and so forth. And they positioned their daughter nearby to kind of watch and see what was going to happen. Sure enough, here, here comes uh, Pharaoh's daughter. She sees the object, gives orders for its retrieval. One of her handmaids uh, brings it to her. She uncovers the little bassinet. This little baby boy is crying. Must have instantly captured her heart. Uh, she decided to take the child essentially as her own son and uh, raise him uh, with her influence, although she allowed uh, the natural mother to nurse him and to uh, work with him for uh, a period of years as well. Uh, she named the little boy Moshe. Moses, which means drawn out, because she had drawn him out of the Nile River. For the next 40 years of that boy's life, he was exposed to two different worldviews. On the one hand, he was exposed to Egyptian education. Do you remember the great sermon that uh, Stephen preached in Acts chapter 7, down about verse 22? He said Moses was educated in all the wisdom of Egypt. So we're talking Egyptian politics, Egyptian science, Egyptian religion, and on and on. That boy was indoctrinated with Egyptian uh, thinking, Egyptian perspective. But it's also clear, is it not, that he was exposed to his Hebrew roots, his background, uh, undoubtedly made acquainted by his mother with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs, the forefathers, uh, the plight of his people in being in bondage uh, in Egypt. All of that set the stage then at the end of that 40 year period where you remember he was out observing uh, life, daily life, and he observed uh, an Egyptian taskmaster mistreating a Hebrew. He intervened. The ensuing scuffle <laughs> escalated uh, to the point that he committed murder and tried to hide the Egyptian body in a sand dune. 
The next day, I suppose he thought, you know, that would be the end of it. <clears throat> but the next day when he saw two Hebrews quarreling with each other, you remember he rebuked them for that. And one of them whirled around and said, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? You going to do to us what you did to that Egyptian yesterday? So obviously word had gotten out. People knew. And you would think being in the position that he was in, affiliated with the royal family, that he would have been exempt from any retribution for his deed. But it's clear from the text that he was in trouble and Pharaoh uh, was after him. And so he made the decision to flee Egypt. And uh, <clears throat> therefore for the next 40 years, he spent life outside of Egypt. Remember he went out into the Midianite desert and uh, encountered a family there, a man that had seven or eight girls, married one of those girls. And really, for 40 years, endured the hardships of desert life. I've often thought, you know, God's time frame throughout Scripture is uh, inexplicable, and, and rightly so, because we don't, we're not omniscient. We don't know everything and everyone, what's in every person's mind. And so we sometimes wonder, you know, why did God choose that time frame? But for 40 years, I can't help but think that uh, during this period, God was honing him, preparing him. Uh, that's how we grow and mature, by hardships in life, difficulties, inconveniences. And it's a, it's a time in your life for development and spiritual maturing. And so I've often thought, uh, that was probably what was going on. Although one lady said, no, it's because like most men, he wouldn't stop and ask for direction. So that's why he wandered. <clears throat> At the end of that 40-year period, notice he's 80. Not probably like our 80 because of longer lifespans. But you remember he was out um, tending the livestock and an, an incident occurred that forever altered the course of his life. He observed a burning a desert bush. It was on fire, but it continued to burn unconsumed. He moved over in that direction in order to get a better look, and suddenly he heard a voice, the voice of God, warning him to keep his distance and to remove his shoes. In Exodus chapter 3, God commissioned Moses to return to Egypt to enlist there the aid of his brother Aaron and to go before Pharaoh and to lay before him the demands of the God of the universe. And you remember he made a number of excuses, but finally uh, agreed and conformed to God's will. And when he went before, of course you remember how the Israelites reacted. Their attitude was, this is not a good thing. You're just going to make trouble for us. Uh, there's applications of that mentality as they're not even in the church. When he went before Pharaoh, you remember, and, and placed that demand there, Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's response was instantaneous. Who is God that I should listen to him? Of course, you know, the Egyptians believed in many gods, but he was not the least bit impressed. And as a result, God, through the power that uh, he exhibited through Moses, proceeded to unleash upon the Egyptian population kin. Ten catastrophic plagues, afflictions. Uh, what was the purpose of these? Water to blood, frogs, lice, flies, death of livestock, boils, hail. You know all ten of them. 
Um, what was the point of the, well, to, to gain the release of the people? Yes, I would say that's secondary. That's secondary. The number one purpose is stated, for example, it's really stated many times through these chapters, but look at chapter 9, verse 16, where God says that he was showing his power and manifesting, making known his name to whom? Not just the Egyptians, but to the whole world. God has acted in history at different times knowing that his actions were designed to be evangelistic and to reach a far greater number of people than those who were immediate. Remember how uh, Rahab stated, we, we, we've heard about you people and the things that transpired all the way back there. So it had, it had the intended purpose. And so notice, uh, as Frank has pointed out so many times, when you go through the Bible, the Bible is about God. The Bible is about God. And that's certainly the case here. The focus is not on the Israelites. And it's really not even on Pharaoh. It's on God who can cause the created order to do unbelievable things that could only be done by an omnipotent creator. You remember the final uh, affliction that uh, was unleashed upon the population calling for the death of the firstborn finally caused Pharaoh to relent. And as a result of that, between two and three million men, women, and children loaded up, packed up in order to exit Egypt. That's the meaning of the word exodus, is it not? And so you remember as they, following the leadership of Moses, uh, leave their homes and off they go. They come to their first uh, uh, land difficulty barrier. Uh, because as they are approaching the Red Sea, they get word that Pharaoh has changed his mind. He has set out in hot pursuit with his military. And therefore, when we turn and look at the people, we get indication of a pattern of behavior that will repeat itself over and over again in the years that follow. And that attitude is, what in the world are we doing out here? Why did we leave Egypt? Weren't there enough places, graves in Egypt where we could have been buried? Why come out here and die? And notice that that is testing, not really Moses. You know, the physical leader takes the brunt of uh, God's people's criticisms. But and many times their preachers need to be criticized. But in my experience, the majority of the time, criticisms arise in the church because people do not like the word and God's impressing upon them the necessity of obedience. And uh, that's clearly the case here. It's a personal challenge to God. But Moses there in uh, chapter 14, he kind of quells that quickly. By telling them, and by the way, the text says they were scared to death. They, they wanted to go back. And so Moses says, don't be afraid. He takes the rod, the very rod that he had thrown down at the feet of Pharaoh and turned into a snake, holds it out over that body of water and makes the announcement to the population, stand still and behold the salvation of the Lord. Most of the time, I think I mentioned, did I not, the term save and salvation in our Old Testaments, uh, the term refers to physical deliverance. And you remember how that great body of water split apart and formed walls of water 
enabling the people to cross, according to Hebrews 11, uh, on dry land. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 3 says, on that occasion, the Israelites were baptized into Moses. You know, you don't have to know Greek to know what baptism means. We have all this confusion in the religious world. Well, is it sprinkling? Is it pouring? Is it immersion? And yet there are indicators all through uh, even the New Testament, especially the New Testament, that clarify that. This is one of them. How, how were they baptized? Well, there's water on the left, water on the right, water above them in the form of the cloudy pillar that God hovered above them. They were literally submerged. And that text says, baptized into Moses. Well, into Moses' role as God's designated emissary, his leadership. So much so that even the law that God gives at Sinai is called the law of Moses. Although it's not Moses' law, it was God's law. But it was given through Moses who mediated it to the nation. God even used the term Elohim, God, to refer to uh, Moses because he stood in God's place though he did not share any divine attributes. Well, you remember Pharaoh arrives as the people have crossed and he arrives with his military, continues his pursuit into the depths of the sea and then again by the miraculous power of God, the walls of water collapse. And look at the next to the last verse of chapter 14 where we are informed that the Israelites observed Egyptian soldier bodies washing up onto the seashore. In chapter 15, we have uh, what some call the Song of Moses, uh, sung, and it's about one thing, <laughs> the greatness of God and how he can care for his people. Then you remember Miriam led some of the women in song and dance. Then the nation, now reassembled, turn and begin their travels in a southeasterly direction down into the heart of the Sinai Peninsula. That seems to be the consensus of scholarship in, in our day with regard to archaeological discovery and so forth. And once again, we catch a glimpse of this pattern of behavior that's just going to keep occurring and finally uh, result in catastrophe. Uh, the first thing out of their mouths when they get out there in the desert is, what are we going to drink out here? And uh, you remember God miraculously enables uh, Moses to strike a rock and water gush out and supply all their needs. Well, what are we going to eat? And see, that's the attitude. It's not of, um, are we going to be able to eat? Have you made any? What, what, what do you, no, it's, what are we going to eat out here? Why, why have you done this to us? That, again, is a direct challenge to God. And you remember Moses uh, used the term Massah and Meribah. Now, those words refer to the testing, the attitude of trying to test God and contend with him, challenge him. They just went and named those places there because that's what the people were doing. Whenever they asked what they were going to eat, you remember God caused <clears throat> this substance to rain down out of the atmosphere and blanket the ground every morning Someone must have stuck their head out of a tent and said, what is it? In Hebrew, you would say, manna. So that's what they named it, manna. It's described as uh, white in color like coriander seed. It's described as a sort of a pastry, like a honey wafer. 
The psalmist describes it as angels' food. God fed the people, the population, with that uh, cuisine for the next uh, 40 years. And you remember they got sick of that and challenged God again. We're sick to death of this. We want something different. And you remember once again, God stepped in and miraculously provided fresh meat in the form of quail that blew into the camp about waist high where you could just reach out and grab it. And yet, even on that occasion, he brought punishment upon their stubborn, defiant attitude. So here is this pattern, and I mean it just occurred. Why did the Holy Spirit record this for us? Why didn't he just tell us, oh, they came out of Egypt, everything was great, and then they went over here to Sinai, and this was wonderful? It's like negativity all the way through the Bible, really. And I believe the answer to that is because God is simply describing to us the human condition. What's the condition of the 7 billion people on the planet now? It's negative. It's depressing. It's discouraging. It's sickening. So why do we need to dwell on that? So we don't go that direction too. Undisciplined children grow up and live an undisciplined life, do they not? And so you and I need to be constantly reminded, oh yeah, a lot of other people have gone this way, and they went down that road, and it was not good. I must not allow myself to give in to all these pressures and things that I think justify me in slacking up from my faithfulness to God. Well, you remember how they... Um, Actually, this would probably be a good place for us to stop. Let's stop right there because um, we are up to chapter uh, 16, and we will pick up at that point the next time we uh, proceed with this series. Okay, if you need to respond to the Lord's invitation... Uh, notice that uh, faith, repentance, confession are necessary, and then immersion. And we just had an example given to us in 1 Corinthians 10 about the role that immersion has played in God's scheme of things in many different ways, like Naaman there in 2 Kings 5 and others. So why would anybody balk at that or hesitate or challenge God? Would you say that that's the attitude that we see throughout the denominational world? Why should I have to do that? I don't think I have to do that. that that's water salvation, just that attitude. Same attitude that the Israelites manifested when they challenged God every step of the way instead of just conforming, submitting. And notice what they lacked. Trust. They didn't trust God. Now I can understand it if they didn't trust Moses. He was a mere man. But they didn't trust God. And we'll see in chapter 32 in graphic form when they actually agreed to the formation of an alternative God. So there's the problem. Do we trust God as we go through life? And it's hard to push away all the things that are pushing and tugging on you that challenge your faith. It's hard to set those aside and say, oh yeah, God will be with me. I can trust him and not fear. If you are a Christian and you need to come before the church and make any spiritual change, you have that opportunity as well. Let's stand and sing this hymn again. Just
Supper has been left for those who have not had the opportunity to partake of it. If you need to do so, you can make your way as we sing the song to be number 265. Number 265. If you're unable to come to the front, you can be served where you're at. We'll sing uh, all three verses. When my love to Christ grows weak. <laughs> 